Well, good morning, Memorial Road. Welcome to those of you who are in the auditorium. And for all of you, those joining from your living room or your kitchen, welcome as well, and those at Fellowship Central. And also, we have people every week tuning in from around the country and even around the world. So uh, we're very honored to have you with us this morning. To begin, um, I'm in a series called City on a Hill, and the big idea of this series is that Christians in the world today, especially in, in the United States of America, are going through a tense season, and we can do more than just get through it. I actually think that if we're following the words of Jesus and if we're listening to the Spirit in Scripture, that we can be the examples for the rest of the world about uh, what it looks like to navigate times uh, with a sense of calm. And so we're calling the city on a hill. I begin this message by showing you a picture. What story comes to Obviously, falling. This is a very sad story. Why are we telling this story? This is a bummer. I want you to look at the exact same picture from a different angle and then tell me what story comes to your mind. Storyline changes quite a bit. Now the story is, oh, it just looks like two guys hanging out, goofing around, taking a picture on top of some rocks. Isn't that interesting? It's the same picture. But when you just spin it just a little bit, you come up with a really different story. I'll, I'll show you another picture. This actually happened last year. A, a volcano erupted in Hawaii. But what storyline are you going to put with this particular photo? There's a lot of storylines you could come up with. In fact, I'll, I'll give you a few. Maybe this went through your head. Maybe some of you thought golfer shows uncommon dedication to game. That's a pretty good story for this picture. Uh, here's another one. Golfer takes ignorance to new heights. Or maybe, maybe you like this third storyline. Shot of the year elicits eruption from volcano. Again, it's the same picture. But we come up with different stories to support what we think the picture means. And so, so here's my point. This is something I've, I've believed for quite a while. I think the stories that we tell ourselves about the events of our lives actually have more power than the events themselves, or at least equally as much power. So anytime something happens to you as an individual, you immediately spin this into a story into your, in your mind. This could be a positive, but it's the story that you tell yourself about the event. So, for example, let's say you take the ACT and, and you're two points off what you know you need to get to get some scholarship. Well, that's just an event. It happened. You could tell yourself the storyline, well, I'm just a bad test taker. I, I always choke under pressure. That's just the story of my life. Or you could tell yourself the storyline, I'm two points away. I'm a hard worker. Adversity brings out the best in me. I, I'm going to study harder. Two different storylines about the same event. And it's the storylines that are really going to impact the person more than the, the event itself. Now, this works as an, at an individual level, but this also works at a societal level. So when it comes to like a big picture, movements, groups, organizations, we can tend to believe stories about certain things and they can shape not just individual people, that they can shape big groups of people. So, for example, in the early 2000s, uh, there was a rise in obesity in America. It wasn't a storyline. It was just a fact. Th these uh, studies were being done, and Americans were becoming more obese. But we didn't really do anything about it until a particular guy came along and told a story. Anybody seen uh, the documentary Supersize Me? 
So this guy took the data of, okay, Americans are growing more obese, but he turned it into a narrative. And the narrative was, if you go to McDonald's and eat there all the time, you will gain weight. And so this pretty interesting documentary, it was all about the, the supersize me part of McDonald's menu. Now, if you walk into a McDonald's today, guess what you're not going to see? You're not going to see the supersized menu. And the reason you won't see that is not because of the stats of obesity in America from the early 2000s. The reason you're not going to see that menu on there is because of the story. This guy took the event and he spun it into a particular story. And that story had a lot of power. So much power that it, that it changed the menu of one of the largest food companies in the world. Stories are arguably one of the most powerful tools that we have in the world today. We're drawn to stories. So, for example, here's the top five best-selling books in the 21st century. They're all series of books. Now, this in, the list includes nonfiction and fiction, but the top five, it's all fiction. It's Harry Potter. It's, it's the Dan Brown series. It's Twilight. It's the Kite Runner. It's Hunger Games. Top five. And the reason these are in the top five is because we love stories. People are simply drawn into these narratives. In fact, psychologists have, have done really interesting research where, where they will uh, hook up uh, brain scanners to an audience while a speaker tells a story. And what they have found is that the listener's brainwaves start to emulate the brainwaves of the storyteller. So stories are really powerful. So in other words, if you can control a narrative, you can actually control a nation. And so what I want to argue today is I think it's really important that we evaluate the kinds of stories that we buy into. A lot of times what happens is we live out and believe and buy into all kinds of narratives and stories, but we're not even quite sure that we're doing it, or, or maybe I'll say it this way, we're not aware that we're doing that because the stories are simply that powerful. So I want to tell you what I think is the single most popular storyline in the history of the world. Individuals have ascribed to this storyline, groups of people have ascribed to this storyline for centuries, for millennia. It's, it's so popular. It has three chapters to it. Chapter one is this. We have a preferred vision of life. So you might tell this as a person. Maybe your family tells this. Maybe you have an, a group of people, they tell this story. We have a preferred vision of life, and it has a certain value system. It's certain things that we believe. It's your vision. It's the way that you completely believe that this is how life should be. That's chapter one. Here's chapter two. An opponent threatens our vision of life. So there's somebody out there. Maybe you're in elementary school, and it's the bully on the playground that threatens your vision of life. This story happens very early on. Or it's later in life where there's a group of people or someone you don't like or a political opponent and that person or that group, they threaten your vision for life. And what's interesting is that most of us, we have our group and then the group that's threatening my vision of life, most of us think those people are, are cavemen and they really don't know what they're talking about and you know, we don't really want to be with them. We don't want to listen to them. We don't want to talk to them because they really have no clue what's going on in the world. Even though there's hundreds of millions of them, we still 
completely don't want anything to do with those group of people because defeat the opponent at all costs. And so we'll do whatever it takes to defeat whoever this opponent is. Now, I don't know where your brain's going. You, you might be thinking, I, th- I think, Phil, you're, you're describing the political climate right now, which is actually true. You can go on either side, and it's a, the identical storyline on both sides of the aisle. But I'm actually talking even more broadly than right now. I'm saying this storyline has been happening forever. In fact, I'm going to look at a few passages of Scripture here. John 11:49. These are the religious people in Jesus' day, and they say this. If we let him go on like this, as in when we, if we let Jesus keep doing this, everybody's going to believe in him, and then the Romans are going to come, and they're going to take away both our place and our nation. Okay, well, what's going on here? Well, this is chapter 1 and chapter 2 for the Jewish religious leaders. Chapter 1, we have a preferred vision of life. So for them, that preferred vision of life is, hey, we've, you know, we're in charge of the synagogue, we're the ones that are teaching Torah, and we have this deal with the Romans. Like, it's the way we want it right now. We walk around the city and we get respect. This is our way of life. That's chapter one. Chapter two, there's an opponent. He's threatening this, this vision of life, and for them, that opponent, the way that we live life. And so, third chapter, we got to defeat him. You have to beat the opponent at all costs. So here's what they do. Luke 23, verse 2. They began to accuse him, saying, We found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar. He claims to be Messiah, a king. And so what they do is is pretty interesting. They're so afraid of Jesus taking over that they just make up a story. They take the events of Jesus' life, boys, healing people, teaching lessons, and they spin it into the story of insurrection and rebellion in order to defeat him. And so they tell this story to susceptible to being manipulated by political spin. Most of us don't think that. But it's interesting to note that Pilate himself fell victim to political spin in probably 15 minutes. So much so that he murders an innocent man and he sets a murderer free. He lets Barabbas go and he kills Jesus. So I'm just saying, these stories are so powerful. Pilate buys into the story, and he does what nobody thought that he would possibly do. Now, I want to give you uh, one more reason why stories are so powerful. And again, the point here is that if if, if, if an organization can control the narrative, they can control the nation. These stories are so powerful. And here's one more reason why they're so pervasive and they're so powerful for, for all of us. It's because these meta, these meta stories or these meta narratives, they run on fear. And so if they can capture what you're afraid of, then they, they've got you. And now, what exactly are, are, are we afraid of? Well, we're, we're afraid of lots of, of, of different things. I think for the Jewish leaders, they, they were afraid that their status uh, would be taken away, that their positions of power would be taken away. So because of that fear, they latched on to this story which led to the death of Jesus. Now, we have specifically nine days from now when, when the election happens. There's a lot of fear going into it. Uh, we fear loss of values. Uh, some of you fear loss of progress. Some of you fear loss of justice, loss of equality. Some of you fear loss of wealth or loss of life. Some of you fear loss of guns, loss of freedom, loss of health. 
And you see, fear is like oxygen. It's everywhere. And so if someone can tell you a story that speaks to your fear, then they will have captured your soul. If they can just make you afraid, they've got you. And so what I'm saying this morning is simply this. I think it's really important to evaluate stories, big stories, little stories, in light of the gospel. Because if you and I don't evaluate our stories, then we become enslaved by them. And so there's a really helpful text when it comes to evaluating stories, and it comes from the Apostle Paul. It's in Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 17. Here's what Paul writes. He says, Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. So in a sense, what Paul is doing is he's arguing for what I would call chapter 1, which is the, hey, we have a preferred vision of life. And Paul is saying, this is our vision. It's the way of the cross. It's the cruciform life. It's, it's humble. It's the life as he articulated in Philippians 2, one chapter previously, where, where Jesus is in very nature God and he doesn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he makes himself nothing, takes the very nature of a servant. And then Paul in that same chapter says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. So what Paul is saying here is, Jesus. This is the life. It's the cruciform life. That's chapter 1. Very next verse, he says this, As I have often told you before and now say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. That's chapter 2. We have a preferred vision of life, chapter 1. Chapter 2, uh-oh, we got enemy, enemies. And so he, he's probably talking about uh, Jewish people that don't believe Jesus is the Messiah and they're disrupting church. Uh, he might be talking about uh, uh, Roman people that, that might be starting to persecute the church. But whoever these groups are, Paul is clearly identifying we've got opponents. We've got enemies, and they don't share our vision for life. In fact, Paul goes on to describe these people. He says, uh, their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, their glory is in their shame, and their mind is on earthly things. So this is a pretty visceral description. I mean, th their God is their stomach. This is a way of saying that their appetite is really bent towards anything other than God. It, they, they are all into sex and money and, and power, and they will do anything they can do to get these things. And, and their destiny is destruction. So Paul's pointing out that the way of life that these enemies are living, it ends in destruction. So Paul doesn't like these people. He's not happy with these people. Whoever these people are, he sees them as a threat to his core belief about Jesus. Now here's where the story that Paul's telling in Philippians 3 gets super interesting. Because you would think that we'd flip the page and we go chapter 3 and Paul would say, all right, it's time. Defeat, defeat the opponent. It, it, it's it's your, your, your job. You need to out-argue the opponent. You need to convince uh, people you know, to not follow the opponent. You need to destroy your opponent. You need to smear his campaign. Call for the false witnesses. He doesn't do that. In fact, what Paul does next is so strange, but it's, it's refreshing. Here's the very next line. Right after Paul has said, man, we've got enemies, and they're a threat to the gospel. Then he says this, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power of 
that enables Him to bring everything under His control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will become like His glorious body. Isn't that an amazing move? He doesn't attack. He doesn't say, go destroy the opponent. It's a a completely different move. In fact, what, what I think Paul is doing is he's rewriting this third chapter. Instead of saying defeat the opponent, he's, he's saying something totally different. Here's what he's saying. The kingdom of God is not in trouble. So chapter one, we've got this vision of life and we love it. Jesus is Lord. Chapter two, uh-oh, this opponent threatens our vision. See him writing this letter and he's so calm in a prison cell writing this because he is assured of certain things that we need to be reminded of. You see, for Paul, the story of the enemy is always secondary to the story of eternity. He knows the kingdom's not in trouble. And it's amazing that, like, when he wrote this, at that time, the church is not big. Small groups of people scattered throughout Palestine. They have no power. They have very little money. They have very little influence. They really don't have any rights in the Roman Empire. And so if, if there was ever a time to for lack of a better term, freak out, it would be back then. Say, oh no, what are we going to do? But Paul says, you know what, guys? The kingdom of God, it's not in trouble. And some of us, we need to be reminded of that. In fact, I want to sit in this point for a minute and really explore why Paul is so confident of this point. In a sense, you might view the few things I'm about to say as subheadings under the third chapter. So if the third chapter reads, the kingdom of God is not in trouble, what I'm about to share with you are three things that Paul says, subheadings or sections that will fall uh, in this chapter. So the first one is this. Uh, Paul says that heaven is home. So we have this great line, our citizenship is in heaven. And, and really interesting about this uh, backstory here, Philippi was actually a Roman outpost. Philippi built about a half a century earlier to house these soldiers. And so the story of Philippi was this. You have residents living in the city, but they know in their head that their real home is is somewhere else. And so they have, in a sense, dual citizenship. And and what Paul's saying here is he's saying, guys, it's the same thing. I know you're living in Philippi, or for us, I I know you're living on earth here in Oklahoma, but you got to remember your home, like, is, present tense, it currently is heaven. That's where you belong. And so don't get so caught up in your earthly battles that you forget about your heavenly home. Now, I'll also say, I don't think Paul here is arguing for some version of escapism where we say, well, because heaven is my home, then it doesn't really matter what I'm doing here on earth. I don't think he's arguing for that because the rest of his letter, he says, uh, he says uh, things like, he tells them to embrace conflict right where they are. Uh, he tells them to engage in real-world problems. So, so he doesn't say just, just go in your little hole and, and hunker down. He says engage in the world. In fact, I love how uh, one of my friends in my Q group, Kendon Murrell, he, said, he had this great point last week about traveling. He said, when a traveler goes to a foreign city, the traveler usually engages the city more than the resident. Because when the residents in the city, they tend to get bored with it and they tend to forget all the good things that are happening in the city. But when you're passing through, you're more engaged. So that's how we are. We're passing through, but that actually means we're more engaged with, with the world right now because of the world to come. Uh, here's how C.S. looked the most of the next. 
So again, main point here is that Paul is saying the kingdom of God is not in trouble. And reason number one is because heaven, heaven is our primary home. Here's the second thing Paul, Paul would say is a reason why the kingdom of God's not in trouble. Not only is heaven home, Jesus is Lord. So Paul writes these words, we eagerly await a Savior from there. Now, interesting thing to tell you about that, Paul doesn't use the word Savior that often. In fact, it's pretty rare. And anytime he does use the word Savior, it's, it's to make a, a point. And so he has a very clear point here. Everybody in the world at this time believed that Caesar was Savior. And Paul writes, Jesus is Savior. And so in other words, what, what Paul is trying to get through to these people in Philippi is he, he's trying to get through, he's trying to say, guys, emperors come and emperors go, but I'm not going to lose sleep over it. And what I would share with you today is this. I don't know who's going to be president of this country in nine days, but I do know who's going to be the king of the world, and his name is Jesus Christ. And he doesn't need to get nominated. He doesn't need to get voted in. He doesn't need to get reelected or appointed. And, and Jesus doesn't really have to run a campaign. He doesn't have to do fundraisers. He, he surely doesn't have to hold rallies. Because every Sunday for billions of people, he does hold a rally, and it's called church. Like, there's two people right now that are pretty stressed out because in nine days, if they don't get enough votes, they lose power. But let me tell you something. Jesus is not stressed out. Because in nine days, he's going to have the power no matter what because he's already king. Like, Jesus knows and Paul knows that that Jesus has something that no president has, that no emperor has, that no uh, prime minister has, that no world leader has. Jesus has a card that nobody else can play. It's the empty tomb. And so someone's going to be president in nine days, but I'm telling you, the kingdom of God is not in trouble because Jesus Christ walked out of a, a tomb one day. And that's why Paul can say in the role, Isn't that a great sentence? Jesus has the power to hold everything under his control. And it's so good that we be reminded of that because what you and I tend to do is we tend to think, well, it's just just the next law or the next reform or the next candidate or the the next invention or the next great, wonderful medicine that comes into the world. Surely that's going to bring order to the chaos. That's just, that's the myth of progress. The way that you bring order to chaos is not the next best thing. It's the king. His name is Jesus. He's still on the throne, and his kingdom is not in trouble. I'm telling you, if if there's nothing else you get from my message today, just hear that. The kingdom of God is not in trouble, and God's not stressed out. And so you and I don't have to be as stressed out as our world tells us that we have to be. So you can evaluate your story, and sometimes unspeakable things happen. So in the 90s, uh, a lot of people say the worst thing to happen in the 90s was the Rwandan genocide. And in fact, historians today still are puzzled as to how it happened. Like it got, it got ugly really, really quick. And so here, here's just a, a very brief history of, of what went on in Rwanda just a few years ago. So you got these two groups of people. You got the Tutsis and the Hutus. And in 1959, the, the Tutsis were in power and the, the, Hutsis, or the Hutus overthrew the monarchy. And so then the Tutsis got together and they formed this uh, rebellion group 
called the Rwandan Patriotic Front, RPF, and then they started doing small things to attack the Hutus. And they would do things throughout the years, throughout the decades. They were bringing the Hutu president, and the plane fell to the ground, and the president died. And so the Hutus viewed this, this as, you just assassinated our president, and that's when everything got out of control. The Hutus got militias together in a highly organized fashion, and they gave them lists, and they said, your job is to go murder these officials in the Tutsi party and their families. They pulled teenagers into their meeting rooms and gave them weapons and lists and said, we want you to be part of this cleansing. They got on their radio programs and they put out propaganda like this, weed out the cockroaches, which was just a code name for you get your sword and you go kill the other. So it, this went from mass hate to mass murder so quickly. Historians are still puzzled how it got so bad so quick, but what is clear is this. In a hundred days, 800,000 people had died. Rwandans killed Rwandans, neighbors killed neighbors, dark-skinned people killed dark-skinned people, and in several very sad stories, even husbands killed their wives. It's a chilling story that happened not that long ago. Now, I simply want to point out two things. Number one, the Rwandan genocide is the final result of the storyline that I have articulated to you today. Think about it. What's this popular story that I'm telling you we've been living out for centuries? It's, I have a vision of life, you threaten that vision of life, and so I'm going to defeat you. And luckily today, even though our, there's a lot of tension in our country, the main way we defeat each other is mainly online. But if we keep going down this road, this is where it ends up. It, it ends up with, with hatred and violence towards other people. This is the final product of the storyline that goes unchecked. And so my question for you is, there's an author, and I was reading a book of his recently, and he said this in his book, blew me away. Over 90% of the Rwandan population claimed and still claims adherence to the Christian faith. So what this means is as the Hutu raised his machete over his head to strike down the Tutsi, he was doing it in his mind in the name of Jesus. You see, identifying as Christian is no guarantee of behaving like a Christian. There have been many Christians for a long time thinking they are living out a Christian story who have ironically become agents of systematic evil. And so be very careful when you assume that Jesus is taking your side. Everybody claims that Jesus is on their side, but Jesus did not come to take sides. He came to take over. And He is calling us to His side. And so be very careful when your political story becomes more dominant in your life than your faith story. Because when you do that and it goes unchecked, I'm telling you, you don't want to go down that road. When you live this story 
and don't evaluate it and begin hating other people without thinking through the lens of the gospel, the only person, the only being that wins is Satan. You see, claiming Jesus is not the same as following Jesus. But the good news is we don't have to let this be our story. I want to give you the third and final section of Paul's, what I would call his chapter on the kingdom of God is not in trouble. Heaven is home. Jesus is Lord. Here's the third one. Look at this verse in verse 21. He will transform our bodies so that they will become like His glorious body. Isn't that an amazing thought? Like one day your body, your decaying, crumbling body that's susceptible to sickness and disease, one day Jesus is saying, I'm going to remake that so that it becomes as glorious as my own body. Like that's Christian hope. And so Paul, Paul would say, I think these three, three sections of his story, heaven is home, Jesus is Lord, and resurrection is real. Like this is where we're going. This is our hope. You know, th- this has been a really hard year in so many ways, but it's been particularly hard for the family members of the following people. Doyle Beverly, Barbara Bode, Erlene Brower, Stephen Cardenas, Mike Carroll, Lloyd Deal, Robert Elliott, D. Fields, Bob Harmon, Clifton Hunter, Kenneth Hild, Howard Leftwich, Laura Littleton, Barbara Lovett, Todd Markham, Diana McNeil, Stafford and Joanne North, Martha Sadler, Bob Satterley, Pat Scott, Darcy Thompson, Betty Lou Ware, Doyce Walker, and Pam Warden. Those are all people we've had to say goodbye to this year. And someone's going to win this election in nine days, and that person, whoever he is, cannot bring those people back. But Jesus can. And he's king. And he's on the throne. And so be very careful about where you place your hope in the next few days. My hope is in the empty tomb. Because I do believe that one day we will be seeing these people again because of the power of Jesus Christ. That's a pretty good story. So if you want to be part of that story, or if you need people who are immersed in that story to pray for you or bless you this morning, why don't you come tell me about it while we stand and while we sing?